Amen. If you have uh, kiddos, elementary age or around that age, we'd love to be part of our Vine Kids time right outside that hallway door there. Likewise, our middle school age kids are meeting. Mr. Greg has those folks, and they are meeting right back here in the back, and we'd love for them to be a part of what we have going on this morning. Um, even though the classes are a little small, we've combined them, and uh, we have great stuff planned for our kiddos this morning. Well, like I said, uh, we are glad that you're here. Welcome to the Vine Community Church. If you are here again for the first time, you picked a, an awesome Sunday. We're here in full force, and so we are glad that you are here. Um, you're actually stepping into the middle, uh, or the very end, excuse me, of a series that we have been on for some 82 weeks now. So we are actually only about three messages or three weeks away from wrapping up the entire Gospel of John. So we started in February of 2017, over two years ago, and we have walked through every verse and uh, every word and every line of that Gospel and we have made it to essentially the very end. We are, we are at this culmination. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And we are starting to see these resurrection appearances. And we're actually standing in the middle of that uh, as we open up the word this morning. So where we've come to is that Jesus essentially has been uh, walked through this moments of betrayal. He has been beaten. He has been handed over to Pilate where Pilate has tried everything in his power to prove that Jesus was innocent. But the crowds that were gathered there... They were so offended by Jesus' very presence, by the threat to the way of life that he was to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, that they demanded that Pilate crucify Jesus. You remember all these things. Pilate not wanting to have to deal with the political upheaval or sort of the uh, issues that would be presented if the Jews revolted, right, because they were under Roman rule. Pilate eventually gives in to the crowd and the mob that's crying to crucify Jesus, and he hands Jesus over to be beaten and to be crucified. Jesus is marched outside of town, and he's hung on a hill between two thieves where he dies, right? We went through all these pieces. After his death, the disciples and those that cared most about him pulled his body down. They prepared it by covering it in strips of linen and over 70 pounds of spices, and they took it to a freshly carved tomb, a tomb that was given to the man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, who gave his own tomb, an unused tomb, and they prepared his body, and they laid his body in that tomb, and they covered it with the stone, right? We remember all of those pieces. That's what marks our faith as followers of Christ, that we believe that Jesus is who he said he was, that he went to the cross. But what makes our faith distinguishably different is that Jesus did not remain in the tomb, that he has been resurrected from the dead. Right? We talked last week and the weeks before that if Jesus actually wasn't resurrected from the dead, then everything that we believe is in vain. And Paul says that we as people are to be pitied the most because we have basically based our entire lives on a lie. Well, the past two weeks, we've looked at the, the, the empty tomb and the beginning of these resurrection appearances. On the first day of the week, Mary goes to the tomb to check on Jesus and to continue with this sort of preparation of his body or to tend to the body. And when she gets there, the stone has been rolled away. And so she runs and she gets Peter and the other disciples. And Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, they race to the tomb. You remember two weeks ago, Brandon talked about how Peter or how John arrived first, but was sort of hunched over the tomb looking in and Peter comes blasting in and they, they realize that the body of Jesus was gone. And then last week, what we saw happen was as Peter and John returned back home, not really knowing what else to do, because Jesus, who was there, is no longer there, and they've yet to figure out exactly what all is happening, right? Did someone steal his body? Where did he go? All we know is that we laid him there, and he is gone. They had yet to fully understand that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Well, Mary is standing at that tomb, and she is weeping, right? 
And as she's weeping, hunched over the tomb, and Peter and John and the other disciples that had come had left, it said that two angelic figures or angels sat on each side of the place where Jesus' body was laid. Mary is there in all of her grief, and these two angels appear sitting on each side of that carved-out area of rock where Jesus' body would have been laid. And what was there were the 75 pounds of spices and neatly folded linens right there on the on the deal the angels say to mary woman why are you crying right mary's not really moved by the angels at all she's just wrapped up in her grief woman why are you crying and she basically says to them unmoved by who they are they have taken the body of my lord right and then she hears a voice behind her it's actually jesus but she's kept from recognizing him she actually thinks that he's the gardener. And he says, woman, why are you crying? Why are you upset? And she says essentially the same thing. If you have taken the body of my Lord, if you've taken his body, please just tell me where it is. In other words, no questions asked, right? I'm not, I'm not going to be mad even. Just tell me where you took his body so that I can go and get it. And then last week, remember, Jesus says one word to her. He says, Mary. And as soon as he says her name, Her eyes are open instantly and she realizes that it's him and she throws herself at his feet and she cries out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, but it was also a way that that people would address God in prayer. And she says, Rabboni, and she throws herself at his feet and Jesus says, stand up, don't hang on to me. I've yet to return to the Father, but go and tell the brothers what you've seen. And she gets up and she runs back to find the disciples And she declares, she says this, she says, I have seen the Lord. And she tells them everything that she saw. And that is our first resurrection appearance, that Jesus appears right there to Mary at the tomb. Well, this morning we're picking up on that exact same day, still the first day of the week, still the day where this sort of chaos and confusion is unfolding. People know that Mary has declared that she has seen Jesus. Peter and John and the disciples know that his body's not there, but they don't all fully understand what is happening, right? They've yet to fully grasp the power of the resurrection, what is actually transpiring. And so they are gathered together in this room and they're afraid. And we're going to see Jesus this morning step in the middle of those fears and we're going to see them begin to deal by deal with them by giving them a purpose and a series of promises. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to John chapter 20 this morning. Um, We're going to look at the second of these resurrection appearances this morning as Jesus uh, shows up in the middle of this locked room, in the middle of the fears of the disciples, and he's going to offer them a few things this morning that we're going to look at really closely that I think uh, are really powerful and that sort of will speak into our lives a little bit as we get closer and closer to wrapping up this incredible gospel accounts. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll look at that text together this morning. God, I thank you for the opportunity to gather here together. Uh, Lord, there's just something really important and really powerful about corporate worship, about people gathering together to sing and to, to pray and to open your word. Lord, it's actually a call that we have in scripture that we would gather together as community, that we would sing hymns and spiritual songs, that we would open your word and that we would tell about your glory, that the redeemed of the Lord would say so. And so, Father, we gather this morning, even in the midst of this sort of bad weather, and we just celebrate the opportunity to come together. Lord, as I mention all the time, we take for granted the fact that we have an incredible luxury here, that we can gather together in open places and worship you. 
Lord, we have friends all over this world that don't have that luxury. We have been with folks in China and friends over there that don't have the freedom to open up a Bible together. They hide them. They gather in locked apartments for fear of their safety, their freedom. And so, Lord, we are grateful this morning that we have the choice on a cold and icy Sunday morning to gather together to worship you. We also understand that everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about us. It's not about me or what I like or dislike, but it's about you moving the lives of people. So take a moment right where you sit this morning and ask the Lord to teach your heart that however familiar these resurrection stories may be, that God would show you something new this morning. Just whisper, Lord, teach my heart this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you or in front of you, even if you don't know their name or maybe you've not seen them before or maybe they're your closest friend or spouse. Just pray for them. Pray that God would move in them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. As I mentioned, everything that unfolds here on Sunday is not about you. We want to be a community that's committed to seeing other people come to know Christ. So pray for the people around you this morning. Pray that God would move in them. Lord, we turn our time over to you. We recognize that we cannot open your word and learn a single thing. You have to reveal truth. You reveal yourself. And so, God, we ask that you would do just that this morning, that you would teach our hearts. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior, and our Redeemer. Amen. So that's where we've gathered. We have, we have made it to that place. Mary has returned to where the disciples were gathered, and she has proclaimed that she has seen the Lord, right? That's on that morning. Well, we've made it all the way to Sunday nights, and the disciples don't really know what to do. So they have gathered together behind closed doors, essentially just to be together. All right, so let's take a look. We're going to pick up in John chapter 20, verse 19, and we're going to go down through 23 this morning. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone, his sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So we're going to pay attention to this first of these resurrection appearances. Next week, we're going to get into the specific appearance where Thomas shows up, and we, we're going to talk a lot about doubting Thomas and, and what he brings to the table. But I wanted to leave this one on its own because it's a really important sort of first encounter that the disciples have with the resurrected Christ. So they had heard that Jesus was resurrected because Mary had come and told them that she had seen the Lord. But we have no indication that they fully believed her. What they all knew was that Jesus' body was gone and they were afraid. And so they gathered together and locked the door for fear of the Jews and they were just huddled together when Jesus shows up in the middle of their meeting. And he looks at them and he says, peace be with you. And he shows them 
his hands and his side, right, where his hands were nailed to the cross and where his side was pierced with the spear, essentially to prove to them that it was him and that he was fully alive. And he says to them again, peace be with you, and they are overjoyed. And he says very specific things to them. He says, as the Father is sending me, I am sending you. And he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, right? Receive the Holy Spirit. And then he looks at them and says, if you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. And if you do not, they are not, right? There's a lot of things in there, some of which seem somewhat confusing, and we're going to kind of get to those. But what's really unfolding in that picture is that Jesus is offering the disciples a few very specific things. But there's a couple of facts I want to just mention about this encounter so that we can kind of get to this place of what Jesus is offering. And the facts right up front are this, right? That the disciples were gathered behind locked doors. So those doors were locked. And Jesus essentially shows up in the middle of the room. He does a miracle. He does not pick the lock or, or you know, open the door or even knock on the door. Jesus doesn't have to, right? He, he lives and breathes in the miraculous. This is the resurrected Christ. But the doors were locked and Jesus enters the locked room miraculously, right? Which should be no surprise because we know that Jesus deals in the miraculous. But I want to mention it because it's important to know that there are no barriers in which Christ cannot pass, both in your life and in my life, or in the hands of, of whatever we want to believe or think, there are no barriers in which now the living, resurrected Christ cannot pass. And he shows them his body. Essentially, he has got a physical body, right? He shows them his hands and his side. We know that Mary was clinging to him when he tells them not to. So we are seeing this miracle moment where Jesus shows up in this locked room. We also know that the disciples were afraid. And John tells us they were afraid of the Jews. It's important to mention this because it's not like these gathered men and women, and we're not just talking about the 12 disciples, we're probably talking about a little bit larger group at this point in time. These are not superheroes of faith. They're not these great, courageous, wonderful people that are at all costs going to go and march and fight for the Lord. They're ordinary people from ordinary backgrounds that are very confused, somewhat afraid. And they're afraid for their lives. I mean, after all, Jesus, their leader, right, who was a leader of this band of people, has just been killed. And not only was he killed, he was handed over and beaten and tortured and humiliated and killed. And if they could do that to Jesus, then the disciples believed that certainly they could do that to us. And they were afraid. And so they gathered together in numbers and they locked the door out of fears. And we're going to talk a little bit more about fear next week when we talk about Thomas. But I just want to make it known. The disciples were really afraid. This is not a moment like we see on Easter where everybody's clapping and the trumpets are playing and everybody's super excited. Like, you know, we have the brass band come and play on Easter and all these things. And it's this sort of jubilant hand clapping. This is not the Easter picture that we see in Scripture. The Easter picture we see in Scripture is one of questions. And one of heartbreak. Remember Mary? We talked about her last week and her broken heart before the Lord. And what a fear. They deeply believed that their lives were next. That the Jews who had pursued and killed Jesus were going to be coming for them. And they thought they might die. And so they were gathered together, afraid for their lives, behind locked doors. 
And the other fact that we see is they were, the doors were locked, Jesus, uh, they were afraid, and Jesus shows up right in the middle of that fear, right? He, right in the middle of their meeting, he just appears. Whether he walks through those doors or just appears in their presence, Jesus shows up right in the middle of all of that. And the disciples were overjoyed to see him. It says that when Jesus says, peace be with you, they got really excited. This is the first time they've laid eyes on Jesus. They know he has been dead. They know that they didn't let him in the room, that something miraculous was happening around them. And John tells us that they were overjoyed. So this is the scenario we're sitting in. So why does Jesus appear to them? What is he offering them and what is he doing for them? And I think there's a couple of things here that I really want you to see because Jesus actually offers them two really important things. Well, one really important thing and then a series of things. He offers them, the first thing that he offers them is he offers them peace. So he walks in, right, or appears in, and he looks at them and he says, peace be with you. Right? And he shows them his hands and his side. They're overjoyed. And then again, right after that, he says, peace be with you. These are the first words that we see Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, offer to the disciples. <clears throat> and when I started reading this, I thought, why would this be the first thing that Jesus says? Why would Jesus' first words to the disciples be, peace be with you, instead of like, hey, it's me, or hello, or we're all good, or guys, uh, hey, I'm back, you know, whatever. Like, I have no idea. But he says, peace be with you. And I think as I started looking at this, what I was realizing was that there's a whole lot of things that are happening in the heartbeats of these disciples that are causing them spiritual and emotional unrest and fear. And when we talk about the peace of Christ in Scripture, we are not talking about peace in terms of tolerance. We're not talking about peace in terms of we all grab, hold, hold hands together, and we all sing songs, and we tolerate each other from all different walks of life and all different places for the sake of tolerance. We're not talking about peace in terms of no contentious behavior, no arguments, no fighting. We're all just going to do one giant group worldly political hug and everyone is going to get along. That's not the kind of peace scripture talks about at all, ever. The peace of Christ is actually something wholly different. My favorite definition, and I've used this one here before, for the peace of Christ, right, is, the, is this. It's the spiritual and mental rest that comes from surrendering to Christ as our highest joy and trusting and believing that he is and always will be enough for me. So long definition, but I want you to understand it's got a couple of pieces. That's the peace of Christ is the spiritual and mental rest that comes from surrendering to Jesus as our highest joy, number one, and trusting and believing that he always is and will be enough for you. So when we talk about peace in scripture, we are not talking about saying, hey, Jesus was the prince of peace. Therefore, we all need to shake hands and lay down our differences and get along. Whatever you believe or want to do is up to you. It's all kind of relative as long as we just sort of peace for the world and everybody gets together. Jesus actually never talks about peace in that manner. He talks about peace against our warring hearts with God, that he has come to basically bring back that broken harmony. But spiritual peace is something that only Christ can offer. 
And I think this is what he's offering the disciples first. Before I send you or tell you what your purpose in the world is, before I give you any promises, what I want you to understand is that my resurrected body, my appearance to you is offering something that no human, no man, no person could ever give you, and that is peace. Peace for your mind and peace for your soul. Before you can ever do a single thing or empowered to ever do a single thing for me, you will need to be at peace spiritually at peace against your warring heart with God. That Jesus has come to die and be raised from the dead so that our heart at war with God will actually be at peace with God. And if he offers those things to his disciples, right, that, that I am your highest joy and that I will be enough for you. If those things are true and that's what he's offering the disciples, there's something really powerful here. And we actually see it played out. So when Jesus walks in that room or stands in that room and he says, he says to them, peace be with you. Look at how they respond to Jesus, right? After he has said this, he showed them his hands and his side and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. They were afraid. They were gathered together. Jesus shows up in their presence in the middle of their fear behind all the locked doors, both physically and metaphorically of their lives, Right? And he says, peace be with you, and they are overjoyed to see Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was their highest joy. In the middle of all their fears and all of their sort of barriers that they've built, both physically in terms of walls and in all the questions and fears that were in their hearts about where is Jesus, all of these things, when they saw him, they were overjoyed. Because even in the middle of their deepest fears and most radical kind of panic moments, Jesus was their highest joy. There is nothing they wanted more in that moment than to see Jesus. More so than Pilate even walking in the room and going, hey, listen, I promise none of you are in danger. I promise. You have my word as a Roman commander that not one of you will be killed for your faith. Jesus' presence was a higher joy even than that. They were overjoyed to see Jesus. And think about my own life and my highest joys. I mean, think about yours, your highest joys. What are they? Maybe it's your family, your children, the job that you have or the career path you're, you're going on or time with your friends or whatever you would classify your highest joy as. For the follower of Christ, we are called, right, to have Jesus as our highest joy. And I deeply believe that we will never have spiritual or mental rest as long as we keep putting other things in the place where Jesus should be. So if our highest joy is we're going to hit that mark financially that we've been looking for, retirement or saving or whatever, or I'm going to get this thing, or my highest joy is going to be eventually I want to get married and have children, as long as we put those markers out there saying these are my highest joys, this is when I'm fully complete. This is when everything will be okay. As long as we continue to serve those pieces, this is when I'll be whole, right? We will never truly find spiritual rest. Spiritual rest comes from finding Jesus as our highest joy, number one, that you are all I desire. Like the greatest thing that could happen in my life would be to come face to face with the Prince of Peace. And that he is and always will be enough for me. Single greatest struggle I have, right, in all of my life is believing that Jesus is enough for me. I say it, I don't live it. 
I hit the panic button. I hit the fear button. I hit the anxiety button. I hit the worry button constantly because I proclaim that Jesus is enough, but my life looks like something totally different. Jesus, you are enough, but I also have to have this, this security, right? This promise, this thing, this answer to my deepest question. As long as I have those, then yes, Jesus, you're enough. But that's never what Jesus promises. He doesn't walk in and give the disciples a single answer. He does not tell them it's going to be okay. He does not tell them they're all going to live. He does not tell them that their families are going to be okay and they won't ever have another need. He basically, in about two seconds, is going to send them into the world on a death mission. But essentially what he's saying is, my peace and my presence is enough for you. He's offering them peace. I don't know where you are, what you're walking with, or what you're dealing with, or where your heart is this morning, but I can promise you this, if if it resonates with you at all that you feel like you're living in a lack of peace, a lack of rest, ask yourself, do I have those two things? Is Jesus my highest joy and am I living like he's enough for me? Because the answer is no to either of those. I can promise you, you are going to be in a spiritual and mental place of unrest. That worry and anxiety are going to run part of your heart. That fear of the unknown or of letting go is going to dictate a lot of how you believe and think. And you may hate it and you may know it because I often know that that's what I'm surrendering to in those moments of unrest. But the challenge then is to to fight it, to say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you can get around any locked door in my metaphorical mind. There's no place in my life that's off limits to you. It's all familiar to you. I cannot wander too far or drift or run too far to escape you. There are no doors, walls, or barriers that I can throw up that you cannot pass through. There is nothing that is off limits to the resurrected Christ in your life. I want to be at a place where I say, Jesus, you're my highest joy. The greatest thing I can have in my life is to just know you. And I want to be at a place where I can say, and on top of that, You are right now in this very moment and always will be enough for me. Meaning that I don't have to have another single thing this world offers. Says I have to have. The idea of the American dream and everybody gets happiness is is garbage compared to knowing you, right? Knowing you and believing that you are all I need. This is what he's offering the disciples, this peace. Because now, in the middle of that, he's going to now give them a promise. Actually, a series of promises. So as he offers them this peace twice, peace be with you, peace be with you. And they respond with it. Jesus is their highest joy, right? And he's saying, look, I am what you need. He says this to them. Again, Jesus says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. And said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So at first glance, it sounds a little bit confusing, this passage, right? And I'll kind of clear it up for just a moment. It sounds like, is Jesus, is he giving them the Holy Spirit now? I mean, didn't that happen at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? So if he breathes on them, are, are they getting the Holy Spirit now? And did Jesus just tell them that they have the power to forgive sins, right? Seems A little confusing, but that's not really what Jesus is doing either of those things, and I'll explain them in just a moment, but he's offering them a series 
of promises. And those promises are really important. And the first promise that he offers them is he looks at them and he says, peace be with you, right? As the Father is sending me, I am sending you. As that he is promising that he is going to be sending them into the world just as the Father sent him. Now, I may not sound like much of a promise, but he's basically saying this is going to be your purpose. You all gather together in this locked and huddled, huddled together in this locked and closed room and closed doors. Originally, your purpose was following me all over this countryside. I would lead you. We would walk. You would do what I do. You would say what I'd say. You would watch me. The Father had sent me into the world with a very specific message and a very specific purpose. And as the Father has sent me and you followed me around for all these years, I now who will no longer be with you physically, am sending you into the world as the Father sent me. Which means, just as the Father sent me, you now have that mission and essentially that message. So what is that? Do you remember in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus announces his presence to the world, like who he is and what his mission? It's a really incredible piece of text. I'm going to read it to you because I want you to hear it because this is the kind of mission that Jesus was given by the Father, and that he was sent into the world to do. So in Jesus chapter 4, he walks into the, into the synagogue, right, to sort of announce his ministry. And it says, he returned to Galilee by the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread throughout the whole entire countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up. And he grabbed a scroll, or he took a scroll, and it was a scroll of Isaiah the prophet. He unrolled it and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Everyone in the synagogue was fastened to him. Then he began by saying to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So this is how Jesus announces his ministry and his presence and his mission. As he walks into the synagogue in Nazareth, he asks one of the Pharisees, we're probably gathered, to hand him a scroll. They hand him a scroll of Isaiah. He unrolls it, finds a place where it's written. He says, this is who I am. It's a messianic text that was written hundreds and hundreds of years earlier about what the Messiah would come and do. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has empowered me to come and set the captives free, to give the sight blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls that scroll up and he looks at every religious leader gathered there in the synagogue and he says, this is me. This, Jesus, is who the Father sent into the world. That his mission was to proclaim life over death. Right? To release the captives. Victory for the oppressed. To be victorious over death. And he looks at those disciples in that room and he says, As the Father sent me, I am sending you. Which means you now become the hands and feet of the ministry and message that I have. Which means that we as the church are a sent people. Hopefully, if you've heard me say this more than once over these years, we live as a sent people because Jesus has sent us into the world, <clears throat> not with a message that we've created 
of one in harmony and love and everybody hug it out, but with the same gospel truth that Jesus himself proclaimed, victory over life and death, freedom to the captives, the year of the Lord's favor for those who believe and trust in him. The church exists not to propagate its own message, whatever that may be. The church exists to take the existing message of the gospel into the world because Jesus sent us in the same manner the Father sent him, which means we cannot be the church and sit here on Sunday morning every week in this place and call ourselves followers of Christ. Eventually, and rightly so, we, not just gathered together, but you individually and your family need to exist out there in the cracks and crevices of culture with your neighbors and coworkers and friends and whoever living the message that Christ lived. It's the promise that Jesus says, I am sending you into the world. You are a sent people. The call of Christ, as I mentioned last week, is not to come and sit, but to go and tell. If we create shrines to ourselves, right, buildings where we can all gather and be, and we do not walk outside of those doors and proclaim the exact same message of the resurrected Christ that God had sent Jesus into the world to proclaim, his favor, then are we really followers of Christ? So he says, this is the first of those promises, series of promises. I am sending you into the world. They have yet to go, but he is sending them. It's going to happen in Acts chapter 1. He also tells them they're going to receive the Holy Spirit. So John says that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Does this mean that they received the Holy Spirit at that moment? Well, we know that that's not true. So Jesus didn't physically give them the Holy Spirit because he is still there with them in presence. It's not until 50 days from now at Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, where Jesus ascends into heaven, right? And as he ascends into heaven, the disciples and the apostles gather together, and they are given the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the presence of Christ indwelling in the lives of believers. We know that that happens. Jesus tells them in Acts chapter 1, he says, you will be given power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So we know that Jesus isn't physically giving the Holy Spirit now. His presence is still with them. But what we do know is that it's a promise. And Jesus is doing this sort of lived out parable where he says, essentially, the Spirit, my breath, right? The Theopunestos, the very breath of God will be on you. Receive it when it comes. It's a promise of what's going to come. If sending is the purpose of the disciples, then the Holy Spirit is the power in which that sending happens. The disciples cannot walk out into the world and proclaim all of these things on their own. They have no ability to do so. They're going to need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit the same way that you and I will need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak one ounce of spiritual truth. That Jesus is promising that when he leaves, he will not leave them as orphans, as he says in John 14. I will not leave you as orphans but I will leave you with the Holy Spirit. It's the great promise for every follower of Christ that when we surrender our hearts and lives to Jesus, the Holy Spirit literally comes and dwells in us and empowers us to carry out the work of Christ on earth. Not by your power, but by the power of God moving in you as his ambassador. It's the promise and call of the church. 
Jesus says, I will send you and you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he breathes on them and he says, when this happens, my spirit literally breathed out on you, receive it. And then he tells them this. He says, when you forgive someone's sins, they will be forgiven. And if you don't forgive them, they will not be forgiven. So the question there, of course, is Jesus telling the disciples that they now have the power that God has to forgive sins or not to forgive sins, right? Well, we know this actually isn't quite what he's saying. Jesus himself, even in Mark chapter 2, says that only God has the power to forgive sins when he heals the paralytic. So we know that only God has the power to forgive sins, and the disciples on their own aren't going to have the power to forgive sins. But what he's basically saying is that my message is now your message. You are therefore my ambassadors, as Paul will go on to say. The message you proclaim with me dwelling in you as your spirit, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, will be the mouthpiece of God. That when you proclaim the good news, when you proclaim this message, if people hear and believe, it is me working and speaking through you, essentially, as they believe this message, their sins are forgiven, and if they don't, they are not. What that means is that me standing up here is a humble mouthpiece of a living God, proclaiming a true gospel through his word, that if you believe the words that are proclaimed in scripture, God promises that your sins are forgiven, not because I forgive them, but because the message in which God has placed in me through his word is real and true. And he's telling the disciples, this is the power of the message that was mine and that is now yours. That I will work through you and I will move through you as my instruments and my ambassadors to take my message into the world. It's really an incredible thing that this is how God chooses to use people. I mean, right, there's a thousand better ways to proclaim the gospel than to use a bunch of feeble, broken, sinful people like us. But yet in God's incredible and marvelous power, he goes to that gathered group of afraid, locked in a room, uneducated disciples, and he says, I promise you a few things. One, you have peace now. My death grants peace for your warring soul, that I can be your highest joy and that I am enough for you. And that when you fully grasp that and live into that, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you as my hands and feet. I'm going to send you as the Father sent me. I'm going to fill you with the Holy Spirit and you are going to become my mouthpiece and that your message will be the message that I give you. It'll be the gospel, the euangelion, the good news. What that tells me is that all of us as followers of Christ have a very specific purpose. That purpose is to understand that we have been reconciled to God. That means that our warring, disharmonious hearts have been brought back to harmony with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. First and foremost, if you're not living in spiritual peace, ask yourself why. Do I fully believe that God is who he says he is? Is Jesus my highest joy or have I placed my joy in other things? Why am I not content? Why am I so discontent with my life? Do I believe that Jesus is enough for me? Strip away everything else, just me and him. Is he enough? Do I find that much joy in Jesus? And then in the middle of all that, if we believe those things to be true, God says, I'm going to use you in a miraculous, amazing way. I'm going to send you into the world the same way the Father sent me, out there, not gathered in here, out there in your workplaces and in your homes and on your streets 
and in those buildings. And I'm going to fill you with the Holy Spirit because you cannot do this on your own. And I'm going to make you my ambassador. You are going to be the representation of my message and of who I am for the entire world to see. But they're not going to see you and all of your flaws and all of your brokenness because your message is attached to something greater. It's attached to the living and breathing word of God. Right? He said, so when you speak and proclaim this, it's not something you made up, but it points back to exactly what I have called you to speak. And that message has the power to forgive and heal and resurrect. This is the call of the church, right? We get so wrapped up in the idea that the church is about community and about us making sure that we get together and we all have a purpose and a place and that we, we fit in. Our kids have this class and our, our adults have this thing and we do this and we all do that together. And those things are important, but it's not the single purpose of the church. Community is the byproduct by which the church exists in. The single most important purpose of the church is the proclamation of the gospel for the salvation of mankind. It's the great end of the church. If the church does not exist to proclaim the gospel, to be sent into the world, to be empowered with the Holy Spirit, and to proclaim the message that was given us through Christ, we are simply not the church. We are a gathered group of people that have similar beliefs. But I would hesitate to use the word church. The church at its core and heartbeat of the disciples gathered together, petrified, knowing they can't do it on their own, wondering what's going to happen, all doors locked in their minds and hearts, when Jesus shows up miraculously and says, I'm going to use you group of broken people, you group of afraid people, and I'm going to use you in an incredible way, and I'm going to send you into the world. I'm going to send you into your biggest fears. I'm going to send you to the people that you're actually afraid might kill you. I'm going to send you to your neighbors, and I'm going to send you to those people that you know and don't know, but I'm going to give you great power. And I'm going to use you as my witness. And I am going to give you a message. And the world will know me because of what I've done in you. Go and proclaim that truth. That is who the church is. And the disciples come back together and they celebrate and they share and they mourn together. But they exist in the world. This is the promise of the church. It should be our promise. But if we don't exist as a sent people, to exist out there, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to proclaim a message that is not ours, but has been given to us, and that is more real than the air that we breathe, that Jesus is our highest joy, our highest joy, and that he always is and will be enough for us. If we don't believe those things, then do we truly believe the resurrected Christ? This morning as we close our time in worship, what I want you to ask your heart is, God, are these things true in me? Is this who I am? Is this who I feel called to be? Do I really believe that you are who you say you are? Because essentially what this communion table does for us is it's a proclamation of all those things wrapped into one place. This isn't a habit that we do once a month as a church because we're supposed to. There's no manual that says, <clears throat> make sure you do this in this way at this exact time frame. This is actually a proclamation of what we believe. That if we truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is, we're proclaiming at this table is that you are alive and that you have empowered us, Jesus, 
as your hands and feet to the world. That you have died for our sin and that you have given us new life in Christ. We sit on this day in history on a Sunday, a resurrected Sunday. But just three and a half days prior to that, Jesus gathered with his disciples. They're still all very confused as to what's going on. In moments, Jesus would be betrayed. He would be handed over by his closest friends and everyone would run on a part of him. As he gathers with those group of people, he takes a loaf of bread and he gives thanks and he breaks it. He says, this is my body broken for you. When you do this, do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you. That as long as you take up this bread and this cup, you are proclaiming my death until I come again. From that point on in history, this meal has been a unifying factor for all those that profess faith in Jesus Christ. That it unites us across time and space and boundaries and geography, demographics, socioeconomic groups. We are connected by our common belief that Jesus is who he said he is, that he is our highest joy, and that he will always be enough. When we celebrate communion this morning, that's what we are proclaiming, that Jesus, your death was sufficient, sufficient for my heart, my life, and my happiness, that you are my God, and that you are all I need. This morning, we'll be taking communion as we do each week by means of intention. We'll have a a uh, group up here and a group in the back. Uh, if you want to come forward or in back, just stand up. And as you feel called and led, come and partake. You'll take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and eat. But as our servers come forward this morning, I invite you to pray with me as we prepare our hearts to take this meal together. Our servers can come forward. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning. <clears throat> we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in our hearts and in our lives. We pray, God, that you would Prepare us to meet with you. We ask, Lord, that you would do immeasurable more than we can ask or imagine. That you would transform this ordinary cup and bread into something remarkable and powerful. Lord, we ask that you would speak to our hearts and move in us as we celebrate this truth. The truth of the resurrected Christ our Savior, and our Redeemer. Amen. As you feel called and led, come share in this meal and then stand and we'll close our time together in worship.